Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. I think I said this a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm used to teaching the aggregates in the context of an Eightfold Path class, which I did for many years. I don't think I've taught it a while, just with Wednesday Wake Up. And I just had this memory of it like being complicated and then so i was starting to put together the talk and i was like well no maybe it's not so complicated then i started getting into it and i was like oh yeah <laughs> there it is there's the complicated part <clears throat> so what i'm going to do today is um give an introduction and then just kind of talk about the context for the aggregates why why aggregates are important in the dharma where they show up and, and why they show up and hopefully give you kind of an overview of this view we call an aggregate view and talk about this a little bit um, and hopefully try and ground it in direct experience. And then um, next week I'll dive into each one of the aggregates and talk about practices with them and how we can use them more specifically in meditation. So the first thing I just wanted to sort of GPS us into the Eightfold Path and remind us the two places where we find this concept so you can kind of locate it in your experience of the Dharma. The first place we see this idea of the aggregates, the five aggregates, is when the Buddha gives his uh, Dharma talk or his sermon, I guess is what it was probably called back then, his sermon on suffering. And he lists out the causes of suffering in relationship to his own awakening. And he does this a couple different times in different Dharma talks, uh, different sermons, but there's one in particular where he lists the following causes of suffering. And most of you are familiar with these. So it's birth, aging, death, sorrow and lamentation, pain and distress. <laughs> and then the ones that always make me smile, being with people we don't like, <laughs> and then being separated from uh, those we like, right? People that we, we have care for. Not getting what we want, <laughs> another one that brings a smile to my face. And then the last one is the five clinging aggregates. So this is pretty big, that in this huge sermon that the Buddha gives on suffering, on stress, that a major player in that game is the clinging aggregate. So you can see the importance of it. Another thing that uh, shows up is that there are a couple of, I don't guess you call them stories, or I guess they're just stories in, in the suttas where students are sitting with the Buddha and they get enlightened during Dharma talks on the five aggregates. So showing the significance of the power of the perspective of looking at things through an aggregate point of view. Don't get your hopes up, though. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen this evening. But um, if so, great. Just wave your hands, like jump up and down if that's happening. But um, if not, no big deal. But there is this idea that the, the aggregates as a topic, I suppose, if they're well taught, can bring someone to awakening. So it's a significant topic. The second place that we see these clinging aggregates are in the four foundations of mindfulness. 
And this gets a little bit more confusing. I'm going to go about three tiers in here, so bear with me, and then I'll summarize to, to, to stick the landing. But we have our four foundations of mindfulness, and as you know, the four foundations of mindfulness are the categories of objects or categories of experience we're invited to bring into awareness as primary objects of meditation. Four foundations, or the four satipatthanas, as they're called. So we have our four foundations of mindfulness. Again, pretty standard Buddhist stuff. We have the body. We have feelings, which are positive, neutral, positive, negative, neutral valence, or hue. And then we have mind, which is actual emotions and cognitions and thought trains and that kind of stuff, moods. And then the last foundation of mindfulness is called dharmas or dhammas in uh, in the Pali. And the term dharma as it's used here, so the term dharma sometimes just refers to the Buddha's teachings, like the Buddha dharma. And at the time of the Buddha, teachers had their dharma. So dharma is not like unique to Buddhism. You had the yoga dharma and different teachers would have their dharma. So dharma can mean truth or law but oftentimes in this context, it just refers to the whole Eightfold Path, the Buddha Dharma, right? So this idea of Dharma, the teachings, but then the word Dharma also means like parts, parts of the mind, parts of the heart-mind, individual mind-body elements. Like you might think of it very generally like subatomic particles, like Dhammas, right? The constituent parts that are sort of constructing reality. That's another another meaning for the word dharmas or dhammas. In this context of these four foundations of mindfulness, the word dharma is actually being used to talk about categories of experience or what you might call spiritual concepts that we can meditate on. And you're going to be familiar with these as well. So the concepts are the four noble truths, the enlightenment factors, the five hindrances, your sense doors, and the five clinging aggregates. So again, putting this in perspective, the Buddha brings up the five clinging aggregates as something that causes suffering and as a concept that we can bring into meditation practice. So most of you are familiar with meditating on the hindrances. So anytime you're in your meditation and you uh, call out, like you use a noting practice, for example, and you say, oh, look, the mind is wandering or craving is arising. That's meditation on Dhamma, right? That's meditation on one of the Dhammas. So most of us are doing that, like, oh, craving, aversion, sloth and torpor. Anytime you're meditating on those, you're meditating on one of the Dhammas. We can do that with the enlightenment factors. Anytime you're noticing equanimity or actively cultivating joy, say through metta, then again, you're meditating on the factors of awakening. You're meditating on one of the dhammas. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So most of us are doing this anyway, even if we don't conceptualize it in this way. So five aggregates of clinging are also listed under dhammas as something we bring into the meditation practice as an object of contemplation. So <laughs> what are they? What are these, these aggregates? So the word, the definition uh, or the translation aggregate comes from the word kanda, K-H-A-N-D-A, kandas, oh, A-S, kandas, or skandas if we're going to do it in Sanskrit, but we'll stick with Pali, kandas. And the meaning of it, it, when it's translated a little bit more literally, is often referred to as a pile or a heap of things, right? A pile or a heap of things. And I found out recently 
that sometimes it can be it can be referred to as or translated as the trunk of a tree or what they call mass or bulk like the bulkiness of an elephant like that that kind of sense of bulkiness right mass or bulk so kanda has this really interesting etymology where it can mean a pile of something it can mean sort of a foundation of something the trunk of a tree or sort of the girthiness of an of an elephant um you know, obviously this is culturally <laughs> culturally contextual that's what it would traditionally means and what's interesting about the definition of the aggregate right is that when you look at it in the West, like we might define the word aggregate, for us, aggregate usually means something that's whole, that's made up of many parts, constituent parts, something that's aggregated, right? So you might say your body is an aggregate of systems, digestive system, skeletal system, uh, nervous system. It has a bunch of different parts that make up the wholeness of what it is. It's aggregate. It has aggregates, parts or pieces. And none of them, you don't reduce the body down to any of them. It's all of them together create this thing that we call the body. So it's very similar in the Dharma, this idea that something is in parts or pieces or has concomitant, uh, a concomitant nature. But the challenge with understanding the aggregates is that we tend to look at the aggregates by definition as things, as essential, solid kind of elements of reality. And that's where we kind of get tripped up. Because even though that's included in the definition, when you talk about the, the aggregates, practically speaking, in meditation, we have to remember that in Buddhism, everything is impermanent. We don't look at things in terms of essences, right? So when we look at the aggregates, and I'll tell you what they are here, the five aggregates as they're listed are form, materiality, the body, feeling, again, we're looking at something very similar to the four foundations, so body, feeling, or form and feeling, perception, perception is when the mind labels something at the sense doors as either say good or bad, or you hear a sound and then the mind says car, or the mind says bird, or dog, or something like that. That's perception. The mind puts a label onto a familiar experience and brings it into reality. That's, that's perception. So form, feeling, perception. Then we have what's called formation, or fabrication, as I like to use. Uh, fabrication or formation, which is all the other things the mind does to create your experience of reality. Most of the time, I think it's easier to remember that we have the body, we have feelings, we have perception. Anything that's not those things, <laughs> that's the other part. That's formation and fabrication. So anything else, formation and fabrication is going to be thoughts, moods, emotions, anything that's putting together experience of reality volition. We'll talk about this next week, but, and then the last one's awareness, consciousness. So we have our body, our feelings, which is that sense contact. We have perception, the mind recognizing and labeling things so it can use it. And then fabrication, the mind puts together reality in a way that has a sense of I'm experiencing life, right? It puts it together. And all of this process takes place in awareness. We can be aware that this is happening. So these are called the aggregates of clinging. 
And again, it starts to get complicated, but we'll, we'll break each one of these down. So the challenge is, is that when we look at these aggregates, we always have to remember that each one of the aggregates is actually a process and not a thing, right? The body is not a thing. It's a, all these different processes in the body, right? Feelings, feelings aren't things. They're all of these complicated processes. Perception, again, a process that happens in the mind. Fabrication, hugely complicated process. And consciousness, again, always in motion, always reacting. So the aggregates are processes, that word is so hard to say for me for some reason, processes that we cling to. So it's the way we relate to these processes that creates the dukkha. It's not the process in and of itself. It's not the form, the feeling, the perception, the formation, or the consciousness that's the issue. It's that we relate to these processes. We participate in these processes in a way that creates dukkha. Now, again, there's a doorway here to not self because all of these processes, as they arise and pass away and the way we cling to them, creates a sense of I am. So again, as we know from basically essential Buddhist, Buddhist idea that the clinging creates a sense of self, which again is another layer of suffering. So these aggregates are processes, processes that we cling to, that cause suffering in the way we cling and create an identity and identity making furthermore makes a sense of suffering. And so this is why they're so important. I think an easier way for me, the way I've, the way I've looked at the aggregates is that sometimes you're going to see people. So if you, if you like Google Buddhism or you Google the aggregates, you're often going to find like little dictionaries online, things like that, uh, little blogs and stuff where people say in Buddhism, the self has five parts called the aggregates. So, but an actual meditator knows that there aren't parts, right? It's all anicca. It's all impermanence. They're not parts of the self. They are processes we cling to that give us the illusion of self, right? It's not a thing. And so it's really important to go into it, recognizing the fluidity of these terms. So the usual way, usually the way I think of it is the aggreg aggregates are what we are not. It's the not self, right? The aggregates are not what we are. So anytime you overly cling to something like I am the body or I am these desires or I am these feelings, you can rest assured from a Buddhist perspective, you are not that thing, <laughs> that there's some delusion going on, right? And in the Dharma, anytime we say I am that thing, you can rest assured that's not enlightenment, right? Because there's no identity making in, in enlightenment. So the aggregates are the opposite of self. They're the not self that 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 occurs in, in the process. So that might be helpful just to remember is that we're letting go of these things because we mistake them for the self and that's what causes the suffering because it gives us a sense of I and then we grasp onto these processes of consciousness or or of mind. And then we give the illusion that there is something solid and something secure there. And I'll go into this a little bit more. I'll deconstruct this a little bit for you. But the main thing to remember is that it is really, really common that if you're looking this up or you're reading it in a book, and sometimes just teachers make the mistake of implying that the aggregates are solid parts of something, that they construct something, when in fact they're just another form of a Nietzsche. So that's the main thing, the main take home in that.
part of the reason that the Buddha invites us to meditate upon the aggregates is, is partly because, let's say, let's, let me say it this way, before you start meditating, right, you just come to your meditation practice. For most of us, we identify as our feelings. I'm angry, right? I'm happy, I'm sad. The I is fused with the feeling right? I'm attached to my views. I am my views. I defend them. I get hurt when you disagree with me. Like we, we fuse with reality to such a degree that there's all of this suffering. And so we start to meditate. And what mindfulness is doing is deconstructing the illusion of solidity, right? It's in, and that's a main thing that happens in mindfulness is we're starting to see that, oh, reality is fluid, it's arising and passing away. It has parts. It's aggregated. It's not dense, solid, absolute, and, and static. It's a Nietzsche, right? It's impermanent. It's fluid. It's unreliable. <laughs> and wanting to make it other than that creates such suffering. So when we, when we approach the, the aggregates, one can say that we're meditating on them, or we can say, it's natural for a person who begins to meditate to begin to see this process, to begin to see, oh, a sound comes in, has a sensation on the body, okay, liking, ooh, more, grasping. Oh, I want this to continue, clinging. We start to see that there's a process, right? It's not just one thing of like sound that I like, it's contact, feeling, perception, grasping, clinging, wanting. So we begin to see naturally as a meditator that moment to moment, there's a series of activities that are going on. That's part of the insight. Because once we can deconstruct the process of consciousness, we begin to see that moment to moment, reality really isn't what we thought. It's not static. It's a dynamic flow of energy that we're participating in and the way we participate in this dynamic flow of this aggregated experience creates what we call living. It's, it's what we experience as living. And before we start meditating, it's, it all seems like one thing, right? It all just seems like one thing until mindfulness starts to break it apart. And as it breaks apart or deconstructs, it naturally falls into these categories. We can see how these categories are just a natural description of what we see in the meditation the longer that we meditate. So that's another way of looking at it. One other thing I wanted to talk about tonight is, and this is where it gets just a little bit more challenging, so I'll see if I can make this clear. The Dharma itself is based on the idea of aggregates. It's based on the idea of aggregates. We don't simply take them as meditation objects. The entire Eightfold Path is aggregated. It's a series of parts that work together in tandem to give us this possibility of awakening. And in Buddhism, the one revolutionary idea among many that the Buddha had for the time was there's no essence. You can use mindfulness to try and find the very bottom or truth or static moment of reality. And it's, it's just a Nietzsche all the way down, right? It's just impermanent. It's changing. It's flow. And so all of the Dharma is based on that insight. It's based on the fact that we try and take a Nietzsche 
and make it Nietzsche. <laughs> we take on Nietzsche and try to stop it, right? It's like driving a vehicle and pulling up the parking brake and then wondering why the damage is being done to the car. That's the dukkha of reality is doing the exact opposite of what life is actually trying to do, which is to stay in flux, to stay in impermanence. So I want to just give a few examples of why this can lead to wisdom or lead to suffering. And the main reason is that human beings feel safer and more secure and more comfortable when things aren't changing. So we, we do our best. We desire, we cling, we long for a world that's simple, <laughs> unchanging, predictable, and safe. And of course we long for that because that would be great. And if you find a place like that, please let me know. I will come live there with you. But that's not the world I live in. <laughs> and I don't think it's the world you live in. So the world we actually live in is really unpredictable. And what's interesting with the mind is that if you think about this kind of, again, through adaptation, as we were developing as human beings, when things are consistent, then they're safe. If the weather stays the same, then we know that the crops are going to grow, right? If no new people come into the neighborhood, then we know that we're safe because we don't have to worry about an enemy. If, uh, if the plants and animals stay the same and nothing dies off, then there's safety and security. So human beings are always looking for repetition and consistency and stability because it symbolizes the sense, not just symbolizes, it is the significant representation of our ability to survive and to be confident that we're going to, you know, keep on going. So it's, we have this natural tendency to want to make things definitive, right? We want to make things absolute. We want to know for certain. And this pervades our entire psychology, like our whole psychology. So if you think about it, isn't it interesting? Human beings want to know that there's an answer to things, right? I'm one of these people. <laughs> I hate not knowing stuff. And so we want the security of being able to say, I know this about X and I'm right. It feels so good to be able to like just fall back into rightness, right? To know that you know something and that you've understood something. And human beings want to know like, what am I and why am I here and where did the universe come from and why is the sky blue? Like we want to know and we want answers. The challenge is we really have this almost passion as a species to want to have simple answers for complex situations, right? We want to reduce things down to really simple things. We want to be able to say the cause of A is just B and I don't want to go any further. We, we take comfort in reductionism. We like to reduce things down to essences, right? And so we'll do, <laughs> we'll do just about anything to find something in our experience that's absolute, that we can like, you know, stake your claim and say, here lies the truth of my experience and I'm sticking to it and I will defend it to the death. And that's what we do, what we do right? We stake our claim in a worldview or an ideology or a religion and then we fight for it because we would rather fight for it and win than to think that there might be another option or possibility and that maybe we're not right. Maybe someone else's spirituality is equally valid. We fear the, inv the invalidness or the possibility that we could be wrong or that we'd have to change our minds. So we cling so significantly, almost violently at times, to 
this idea of essences, right? Simplicity. We want to make things flat and simple, black and white. The complexity is really exhausting. And, you know, just think about, <laughs> wouldn't it be amazing if we could just say, the answer to climate change is A. And, and we know it for certain. And if we just do A, it'll be fine. I mean, how cool would that be? Or the answer to the conflict in Ukraine is A, B, C. And let's just go do that and be done with it. But life isn't like that, right? It's just so many causes, so many conditions, so many things are rising and passing away. Human existence is complicated and exhausting. Do you ever just say to yourself, I actually find myself saying this quite a bit now that I think about it, is like, why does life have to be so complicated? Like, can't something just be easy for a change? You know, like it's just so many things that just like, oh man, I can't think of one now because it's like my entire existence is basically like that. But any part of my life at some point in time, it's like, oh man, why does the microwave not work? Or why does the car have to break? It just, we just want solidity, right? We want confidence and safety and security. So the truth of seeing through that is seeing that it's actually aggregated, it's parts and pieces and systems and complexity. It's not simple, it's just not simple. That's just not how reality works. Now on the spiritual level, we do the same thing. We really want to reduce the answer. Why am I here? What is the nature of the universe? What is the nature of love? All of these things that human beings like to write gigantic tomes about, you know, what are these things and what is my purpose in life? These kinds of things. We want to like have an answer that we can reduce down to an essence. This is called essentialism in philosophy, which is the opposite of Buddhism. Essentialism. We want to reduce things down to essentialism. And so we want to say things like, Everything is love. Everything is God. Everything is one. We, we like to have these little, little catch bumper sticker phrases about spirituality that kind of takes all of the complexity of spiritual experience into this one little phrase because it just feels comfortable to be able to reduce things down to one thing. Everything is consciousness. Again, I'm going to invite you to consider this. Anytime a thought train pulls up in your head that says everything is dot 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 you can be rest assured that everything is not that <laughs> everything is not that and that is not the answer you're looking for just keep going just let the bus pass by and wait for the next one <laughs> because in the dharma right in the dharma our role is to let go of everything that we think we are and what is left over is what we are but it can't be labeled it can't be reduced down to something so the big the big thing that the Buddha did with his, with his teachings was he always speaks of enlightenment in the negative. It's not this. It's not that. It's not this. It's not your thoughts. It's not your feelings. It's not A, B, C, D. And so, of course, it's frustrating. <laughs> but if you keep let, letting go of that which you are not, what is left over is the liberation, is that which lies beyond the grasping, the clinging, the identity. So aggregates are this idea that it's a conglomeration of things that are just rising and passing away with karmic conditions cause and effect but there's no essence there's you can't reduce it down to any one thing it's just an aggregation of things i'm sure some of you have heard the the 
elephant, elephant and the tortoise analogy. I'm sure a lot of you have heard this. So it actually comes from, I think originally from a, a Hindu myth, and then it got sucked up into Western philosophy at a certain point. But the basic idea is a, a child is asking a parent or a student is asking a teacher, you know, how is it that the earth hangs in space and doesn't fall? Like what's holding it up? How, do, how does it? And the, the teacher says, well, obviously it's being held up by four elephants because elephants are pretty sturdy and they have big feet. And so the earth is resting on the back of four elephants and the earth just sits there evenly. And so it doesn't doesn't fall anywhere. And then the student says, but oh, what are the elephants standing on? And of course, the answer is the elephants are standing on a gigantic tortoise. They're on the tortoise shell and that gives the elephant stability, which keeps the earth in place. And then, of course, obviously where this goes, well, what is that tortoise standing on? Well, another tortoise, you know, and it goes on and on. And finally, the, the, the story ends in one of two ways. The student says, well, what's that tortoise standing on? And the teacher's like, I don't know. <laughs> right? Or the answer is, it's tortoises all the way down. It's just tortoises. <laughs> it's just tortoises all the way down. So in the Dharma, right? we don't look for the final tortoise. Like, that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to, to scale down the chain of tortoises and find the essential tortoise at the end. And everything is tortoise. That's, that's not where we're going with the Dharma. We're looking at all of the tortoises together and how they interact, their aggregates. We're not looking for an essence. We're looking for how the tortoises relate, right? How do we find compassion in these tortoises? How do we find freedom in these tortoises? We don't care about the final tortoise, right? What we care about is, can we be happy with the tortoises? Like, so it's a, the Buddhism takes a different approach. It's an aggregate approach to looking at essences, right? And truths. So this is why aggregates are so important in the Dharma, because the whole path is about not clinging and making an aggregated world into something into something solid. Two of the ways that we see the aggregates or the theme of aggregates in the Dharma, again, I just wanted to clarify so you can see how substantial this is. The Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is designed the way it is as, as folds, right? As aggregates, it's folds, because the Buddha could see clearly that it's not one part of the path that leads to the liberation. It's the dynamic and karmic interaction with all the parts that leads to the freedom because reality is like that. So the Dharma is like that. The Dharma is interdependent parts that interconnect and reflect back to each other. They're symbiotic in the way they work. So if you take wise view, Right, we have wise view, which is the soil for wise speech, which is the soil for wise thought, which is the, each part of the eightfold path is nurturing all of the other parts of the path. When we have wise view, then the mind gets concentrated. When the mind gets concentrated, we have a clearer view. When we have a clearer view, then it's easier to keep the precepts. When we keep our precepts, the mind gets calm and it's easier to increase concentration. We do all of these different things and the different things together are what make the whole. But the Buddha never reduces the path down to any one, which is why the Buddha's instructions are to cultivate the parts, stabilize the parts, and then balance them. 
So the model is a balancing of aggregates. It's a balancing of interactive processes. That's what we're looking for, a balanced mind, a mind that balances investigation with equanimity, a mind that balances skillful effort with tranquility. All the enlightenment factors, again, pieces, right? Parts or qualities of heart-mind. So we see, when we look at the path, we, we start to see, oh, all of our instructions are about practicing separate things that when we put them together, give rise to something else, right? That's an aggregate framework. And if you look at, um, you know, I think one of the easiest metaphors would be just sports. It's funny, I use sports metaphors a lot, but I've never really played, I mean, I played sports like in junior high or something, but I never played sports in like high school. I was totally not capable, but I always use these, these analogies. So an analogy would be, you know, you're gonna play basketball. And, but in order to play basketball, which is the whole, you have all of these different skills. You have to be able to pass and dribble and run. You've got to be, have to have stamina and strength. You're going to lift weights. You're going to do all of these things so you can then get on the court and be the basketball player. The Dharma is the same way. Each fold of the path is aggregated. It has four or five different things that are supposed to be brought into balance that feeds the whole. And the enlightenment factors, again, another example, the enlightenment factors, you might work on just one today or you might work on two together, but in the long run, you are cultivating these heart-mind qualities and then you bring them together in this kind of recipe and you put them all and stir them up and then when it's balanced, then that's the, in a sense, the end goal. Not the end goal as an enlightenment, but end goal as that's what gives rise to liberation. So everything in the Buddha Dharma is based on this model of aggregates. Let's see if I want to say one other thing here. Okay, yeah, I do want to say one other one other set of things here about uh, the benefit, because I think this is also important. When we have the courage, and I do think it does take courage, to suspend <laughs> or temporarily suppress our desire for reality to be something other than it is, something other than anicca. When we can find the courage and stability of mind to be able to see that, reality rewards us. And some of the rewards of being able to see through that illusion of solidity is that we see that the universe is a dance right? It's a dance of interacting things. And that there's more than one thing at play. That there is multiple causes in the universe for single events. It's not just ABC. It's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and flip back around over and over again. And we start to see beauty in the complexity. We start to see that looking at things and honoring the complexity gives us more... Uh, like more surface area to work with, right? Life can be richer if we can not be afraid of the complexity. If we cannot be afraid of the uncertainty that comes from looking at reality as being pretty complex. It's really hard when we want the world to be a certain way to really acknowledge that so much of it is a mystery, right? There's so much we don't understand. And even when we think we understand it, there might be another, another point of view out there that might be equally valid. And so when we step back and allow there to be many parts to things, many points of view, our relationships with other people become softer. 
right? We become less attached to being right. We become more interested in connectivity and compassion than correcting people and making them into solid things, right? We do less of the enemy making, right? You are evil or you are whatever, dot, dot, dot. It's so easy to reduce people down to an essence, especially those people we don't like, right? We look at someone we don't like and we're like, you're an ass. And, that's, and, we're, and we're confident that's true, you know, because the person's not very nice. So we box them in to an, to an essence rather than realizing that person is a fluid manifestation of childhood baggage and current things and all kinds of junk going on. And it's just an arising and passing away of stuff. So bringing an aggregate view to reality opens our hearts. It opens our minds. It gives us some freedom and flexibility to participate. And also, one of the things that this is great for, or you might even say mindfulness does this really well, by acknowledging that there's more than one possibility or that more than one point of view might be possible, that encourages creativity. It allows us to be creative with our life. It allows us to innovate. If it's just one answer, there's only one answer in the universe and that universe is right, and that answer is right, it doesn't give us much flexibility to work with. And our lives become very claustrophobic. We enter into a state of black and white thinking, whether it's us and them, either or, A or B, this dichotomous type of clinging that we have. When we can open up to multiple causes, and which is what dependent co-arising is, for those who've got that down, when we open ourselves up to that, we can have deeper relationships, new possibilities of engagement, and ultimately compassion. Because we have to remember that oftentimes, an absence of compassion rides on the back of boxing someone into something, right? Making them into something. You're a bad person, therefore I can't love you or care for you. And we get trapped in the label, we get trapped in the perception, and then the person's trapped in a prison we've made and we can't engage, we can't connect heart to heart. And it's so easy to do, of course, because um, that's what we're good at, because we want to be safe. So it's easier just to stereotype somebody than it is to treat them like a human being. I mean, inherent bias that we have in the mind is just the easier way to go than it is to be able to get past our biases and get past our prejudices and to see how we identify and label people in different ways and try to reduce them down <laughs> to something that we can blame or shame or uh, just easier easier to manage, right? It's easier to manage people when you take away their humanity. Then you could just like mess around in your head like it doesn't matter. But as soon as you give them the full breadth and depth of their humanness, then you have a human relationship on your hands. Then you have to deal with the complexity of human beings like, you know, friendship and love and the depth of all of that stuff. So just wanted to point that out, that there's an emotional and a psychological part of this, that opening up to the fluidity of reality, not trying to compartmentalize it or reduce it down to some kind of essentialism, opens up the heart, opens up our ability to play with the world much more, breaks free from the cages that we make for ourselves and others, which is why it's such a big deal in the Dharma. So I'll pause there. I think that's a good ending point. Just wanted to make sure I got that part in because I think it's important, especially as we grow into uh, the next part of this where we talk about uh, the aggregates themselves. And so I'm just going to review the aggregates again. Remember, we've got form, which is the body, all of materiality, 
whether it's the internal or external, it's all the physicality, the feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the perceptions. Perception is a big one. I kind of am excited about talking about this. Perception is the labels. Gosh, the human heart loves to label <laughs> label things. And then once the human heart is like, it's like a sticky note that never comes off. It's like once we label something, we can't rem we can't remove it. Once we judge someone, it's like it's like chiseling it in stone. Perception is so necessary for the human experience and it's so dangerous and causes so much trouble for ourselves. So perception, how we label reality in particular ways, good, bad, us, them, dog, chicken, whatever, all of those things. So perceptions. Then we have fabrications. That's all the other mental mumbo jumbo. It's the mind putting together the perceptions into entire thoughts, entire worldviews putting the sense contact together and making a mood. So fabrication is how the mind creates the experience. And lastly, we have, of course, consciousness, right? The screen upon which all of this presents itself, the awareness that allows us to even have this conversation about this entire, this entire Dharma talk occurred in consciousness. So this whole thing occurred in our own consciousness, which is the fifth aggregate. So the next step in this is to, to go into these aggregates and remind ourselves, okay, what are the practices for using each one of these as a mind object? How do we gain any insight or gain any wisdom from the actual aggregates? Once we realize that part of the path itself is to honor this aggregate nature that we see in the universe and looking at our aversion and the clinging to them because we want to have this solid sense of self. So that's where we're headed with this. We'll go into that next week. All right. Yay. Let me conclude by saying thank you so much for being in my life. I really enjoy doing this with you week to week. Thank you for participating in Wednesday Wake Up. It's a joy. It really is. On that note, if you would like to stay for some closing meta, we will do that. If not, much gratitude to you. Be safe, be well, and I will see you next week for some more... Uh, Aggregate talk. All right. Take a couple long, slow, deep breaths. Really relaxing about into this physical form, feeling deeply into the body. We've spent uh, 45 minutes or so fabricating thinking. Let's let fabrication go for a moment or two and just be back with the body. What does it actually feel like in this moment? Notice the energy. Let's thank ourselves for the practice of this evening. The intentional action of coming together in community to support each other in practice. What a blessing that we live in a place that's safe enough and that we're healthy enough to be together in this night. 
let's extend some gratitude for everyone in this Dharma Hall this evening. The appreciation of the generosity of being. Let's allow that goodwill to roll out into the world. Let's wish the planet well, and that this very earth be free from suffering, and it be free from harm, that it be respected and cared for acknowledged and honored for what it is, our home. And let's wish all beings who call this home and all beings in other universes and other galaxies, all beings to be free from suffering, to be safe and secure and free from harm. Let's wish for all beings to know true joy true compassion and true delight in this very lifetime. Let's wish for all beings to be free from suffering. May all beings be free. Thank you, my friends. My parting wish for you is that you are able to, with kindness and compassion, let go of that which you are not. So you may become that which you are. Take care of yourselves. See you next week. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. 
While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.